0: John 2, verse 12 to 25, it says, After this, he he went down, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you have written for us. Under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, we pray that your word would be a light to us this morning that we would glorify you because of what your word teaches us about Jesus. So we pray that you would help us remove the distractions that might be in our minds so that we may be fully engaged with your word this morning. We trust you, Lord, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. On the most holy and sacred ground in all of Israel stands a mosque called the Majir Al-Aqsa, The reason why this ground is so sacred to all of Israel is because this is the same ground on which uh, King Solomon's great temple once stood, and it's also the same place on which the the temple of our passage once stood. So two great temples have been replaced by a, a mosque that's been there since 1187. So Israelites, especially followers of Judaism, see it as the most heinous desecration of the holiest place. And to this day, Judaizers will pray in the direction of this holy ground and will not even dare to walk on that area, on that temple mount of fear of walking into the most holy place. And that is, uh, that is the place where in the temple there was the, the most holy place where the, the, the high priest would enter but once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. So, it, so Judaizers, those who follow Judaism, would not even dare to walk on a temple mouth for fear they'd be walking on that very place because they believe that perhaps the presence of God still dwells there, even though there's no temple. So today we Take, the top, take up the topic of the temple, which is the topic of the passage this morning. And the temple is a most sacred place, not just, not just to Jews, but it is also to Gentile Christians. It's the most sacred place to us. And the reason is, well, I'll tell you the reason later. I don't want to give all the details right away. But the temple is different, right, than the physical temple that that the Israelites worshiped at, and the one that they look forward to this day. The temple that we worship at is very different and a far better temple. And so the passage walks us through an event that takes place in this physical temple, but then it ends with, a, with this, peculiar, this peculiar thought about faith. So picking it up in, in verse 12, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his brothers and his disciples and stayed there for a few days. And it tells us the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So verse 13 is is an important statement because it tells us that this, this is what sets up the entire event of the passage. It tells us the Passover of the Jews was at hand. The Passover celebration was instituted way back in the book of Exodus, right when God's people were slaves of, of the Egyptians. And so because this is the event that's taking place in our passage, I think it would be uh, helpful to refamiliarize ourselves with the Passover event. So God had pronounced, back in Egypt, God had pronounced a judgment upon all the land of Egypt, that He would take the life of every firstborn child because of Egypt, specifically um, Pharaoh's unwillingness to loosen the bonds of slavery over God's people and let them go. But God provided a way for His people to be spared of that judgment, and that is by taking a lamb and slaughtering it and and taking the blood and sort of painting it on the doorposts of each house. And so when the angel of the Lord would come by night, he would see the blood on the doorpost and he would simply pass over that house without taking any life and move on to the next home and so that event the Lord wanted to commemorate and so God had instituted that they would celebrate this particular event every single year and so that's the event that was about to take place here in our passage and so there was there was only one temple and that was in Jerusalem and so Israelites from all over would, tr- would make a pilgrimage each and every year to come to the temple to worship the Lord, to offer sacrifices. Scholars estimate that at around that time, there was, the population was about 20,000 people. But during the Passover, that population swelled up to about 150,000 people. And so it's an important event, an important celebration that people traveled miles and miles in order to commemorate. And for an entire week, Sacrifices would be offered up to the Lord according to the Levitical uh, laws and prescriptions. So families and individuals would offer up sacrifices. And it would all lead up to the climax of the entire event, and that is the slaughter of a lamb. And so it is during this particular event that Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, enters the temple of the Lord. And what he finds are merchants selling animals and money changers, exchanging the currency... Now, for the Jews who were traveling far distances, right, it made a lot of sense to just make your purchases, to, to make your uh, purchases of the sacrifices you need when you get to Jerusalem rather than to, to travel with them for, some, for, so, so for so long of a distance, right? So, you can understand that, but that's not exactly what Jesus had, uh, had a problem with. But immediately, when Jesus sees all this, he makes a whip and starts driving out all the oxen, and all the sheep and every, all the cattle out of the temple. He starts flipping over the tables so of the money changers. Because his problem is not with the exchanging of money itself, but the problem that he has is that people are not coming into the temple with the right heart. The expectation is that when someone enters the temple, that they do so with, this, with, a, with a mind and heart of reverence, of fear, and worship. It's a time of reflection to think back to what God has done in the past and to worship the Lord for what He has done. So what's happening in the temple is a, it's a distraction, it's, it's irreverence, and it's a desecration of the temple of the Lord and what it symbolizes. So rather than coming to the temple and finding people on their knees and praying to the Lord and worshiping God, what he finds is just people haggling for prices and making purchases and exchanging currency. And so he purges the temple. So no one is coming into the temple with the right heart, and no one understands that better than Jesus, who is the Son of God and also the Lamb of God. The passage then says that as Jesus was doing these things, that the, the, that the disciples remembered that the scriptures say that zeal for your house will consume me. And the passage that the disciples are thinking about is, is Psalm 69, where King David, the psalmist, writes about his being persecuted for his zeal for the house of the Lord. So that's a prophetic psalm that points to Jesus' persecution in part because of his own zeal for the house of the Lord. For example, in Mark eleven fifteen kind of describing the same event, though some would say that there are two different occasions where Jesus purchased the temple, some it's just one, but in Mark 11, it tells us, and they came to Jerusalem, that is Jesus and his disciples, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Jesus was purging the temple, removing the distractions that impeded the people from coming into the temple with the right heart and with the right attitude. And the book of Malachi actually provides a helpful, a helpful commentary. And actually, John, the author of the gospel, may be alluding to this particular passage in Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, "'Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming,' says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears?' For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Jesus cleanses the temple because the temple demands that people enter it with a heart and attitude of reverence and worship. Because to enter into the temple is to draw near to the very presence of God himself. And so this whole event then leads to this, this, this illuminating interaction, and we get to the heart of this passage. So then picking it up, in verse 18, the Jews, that is the religious leaders, said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So what sign do you show us for doing these things? The religious leaders asked Jesus. And as the ones who were, who were in charge, who regulated and controlled all things surrounding the temple, especially the Passover event, they had every right to question Jesus by what authority he was doing these things who are you to be doing these things to, to driving out all the oxen, all the money changers, and the merchants? What right do you have, Jesus? It was a question of authority, and it's possible, I think, that these religious leaders may have perceived that Jesus was not just a man, but may have been something more than a man, possibly a prophet. Because like John the Baptist, Jesus spoke like and behaved like prophets. If you read through the Old Testament, you know that prophets always called the people to turn to the Lord, and they did radical things, and this is what Jesus was doing. He was calling the people to return to the Lord with a right heart and a right attitude of reverence and worship and fear before the Lord. Had the Jews perceived that Jesus was a lunatic or a drunk or a madman, they would have simply called the Roman authorities and had him arrested on the spot. But Jesus... Well, at least it was clear to them that this man wasn't a lunatic. He was in his right mind. And the fact that Jesus was able to drive out, I mean, just just imagine all the merchants and all the oxen, all the cattle and everything that's in there. Jesus was able to drive all of them out all by himself, right? That at least show you this, that he had a commanding presence. And we know that it's because he was the son of God, but they don't know that. And so, at the very least, they perceive that there would be this, something about this man. And so, they ask him to do a sign, show us a sign to show that you are from God, to show us that, you know, by what kind of authority do you have for doing these things, right? Because whose authority can supersede that of the religious leaders? But the only sign that Jesus will give them is a sign of his resurrection, which they think is talking with the mistake for the... the destroying of the physical temple and raising up the temple. So they have no idea what he's even talking about. But in, in that statement, Jesus is telling us something very, very fundamental. Because he's saying that the temple is his body. Right? Destroy this temple and that will raise it up in three days. And then we have John, the author's kind of editorial and helpful comment where he says that he was speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus is referring to his body. So what Jesus is saying, what we can learn from this passage is that Jesus replaces the old temple and he himself becomes the new temple. Think of what the temple represents. The temple represents the meeting place between God and man. God's presence dwells in the most holy place of the temple. And as we, if you remember back a couple of weeks ago when we looked at John chapter one, Jesus tells Philip that he, that that the angels of God are ascending and descending on the Son of Man, alluding to the dream of Jacob way back in Genesis, when Jacob had a dream in the wilderness of a ladder where angels were ascending and descending from heaven to earth. Jesus is the new meeting place between God and man. He is the temple. He's that connection between heaven and earth, between God and man. And Jesus is the better temple than this physical temple that was there. Music doesn't really go with this. <laughs> Cued it at the wrong time. So Jesus is the new and better temple. He replaces the old temple. And why did the old temple need to be replaced? In order to make way for new worship. Jeremiah teaches us how this new worship of God is possible. In Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one. It tells us, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So Jeremiah tells us that this new worship of God is possible because God will give his people a new heart, a new heart that has the words inscribed and so that the people actually want to obey the Lord and follow in his ways. And we will get to it later in John, but in John chapter four, when Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman, he says to her in John 4, 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Earlier, in this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, she says, your people worship on the temple, we worship on this mountain. But Jesus, in effect, is what he's, what he's saying is that there will soon come a time, and it's now here, that it doesn't matter where you worship. You don't have to be at the temple, you don't have to be in this particular mountain, or this particular place. What matters is that you worship in spirit and in truth, and you can do that from anywhere, at any time, at any moment. To engage in proper worship of God no longer requires that you be physically present at the temple, but true worshipers of God will worship in spirit and in truth. And this extends out beyond the Jews to include Gentiles as well. Gentiles could worship God, and they can do so in spirit and in truth. To worship in this manner means that worship is no longer confined to a religious system. In fact, you can be the most religious person in the world, go to uh, services every single week, you can attend the Bible studies and teach Bible studies, and you can be giving to the church on a regular basis and not be worshiping at all. To worship in spirit and in truth involves the heart and the mind with an aim to please the Lord at all times, not just in the temple, not just in the church, but especially outside of the church in regular daily life. Also, because Jesus is the new temple, sacrifices are no longer necessary because Hebrews 7.26 tells us, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, that is Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is the one sacrifice required because the sacrifice of his own life purifies the conscience of his people and removes their sin once and for all. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Jesus is the high priest who makes atonement for the sins of his people, and Jesus is also the temple. But if that's the case, if Jesus is the new temple that replaces the old, then why does he care so much about purging the old temple? Right? If it's just going to become obsolete anyway. At least, for at least two reasons. First, because the temple was the house of the living God, the house of his father. And he cared about his father's house. And second, this whole event he did this, this, all this, the cleansing of the temple, the purging of the temple, he did this for the sake of his disciples and all those who would learn from them. Verse 22, it says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So when Jesus was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered this particular event, this purging of the temple and what Jesus had said. And they believed in him. So after the resurrection, they finally, they then understand what Jesus meant, that Jesus replaces the old temple with a temple of his own body. And so he does this, Jesus does this for their sake and ours also, so that we would also understand that Jesus has become the new temple of the living God. Now, during his stay in Jerusalem and during the Passover and even according to other gospel accounts, Jesus began to perform signs. He was doing, he was healing people in the temple itself. And on account of the signs Jesus was doing, people began to believe in him. But before we are encouraged by their faith in Jesus, the passage concludes with a clarification of that faith, that it is actually a false faith. verse 23 says now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man it's such an odd passage at least to me Jesus begins to publicize his ministry by performing these signs in front of the people and for the people. And as a result, people then begin to believe in him. But then it says that Jesus will not entrust himself to them. Why not? Verse 24 tells us it was because he knew what was in man. That is, what was in their hearts. So what that statement in verse 24 does is that it clarifies the kind of faith that these individuals that these believers showed in Jesus. It was a kind of faith that Jesus did not trust. The kind of faith that these people had was a, was a precarious faith, a faith that is insecure and unstable. A precarious faith will say, Jesus, I will follow you anywhere, wherever you call me to go, except to the place that I don't want to go. A precarious faith is a faith that will say, Jesus, I will give up everything for you except that which I love and prize most. Very much like the rich young ruler, right, who would not follow Jesus because he was unwilling to part from his riches. A precarious faith is the kind of faith that will one moment shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but the next moment will cry out, crucify him. A precarious faith is a faith that will not submit to a relationship of discipleship under Jesus Christ. You and I both know that anyone can say that they believe in Jesus, but how many can say that they are a disciple of Jesus? To be a disciple of Jesus Christ means that you follow him, that when your flesh and the desires and the wants want to set you on a different path, that you are always setting a course, direct, a course correction to make sure that you are always following Jesus. If you were to fly from, from Boston, from Logan Airport, it's kind of, if you look on a map, if you look on a globe, it's a straight shot. If you go straight south, you'll end up somewhere in, in Bogota, Colombia. But pilots know that you can't just simply aim south and expect to get there because the earth is always moving. And so they always have to set a course correction to make sure that they end up at their destination. Disciples of Jesus are constantly correcting their course to make sure that they are always following Jesus. And why should disciples of Jesus always be making sure that they are following Jesus? Because their lasting happiness is not in this world, but it rests ultimately in Jesus Christ. Because Christ is the one who leads us to heaven and to the enjoyment of God. The faith of these believers in the passage, would not lead to discipleship. Brothers and sisters, you have to make sure that you are always following Jesus. You can't put that on autopilot. You just can't. You've got to do it manually. You always have to be setting a course correction and make sure that you are following Jesus. The faith of these believers in this passage, their happiness did not rest in Jesus Christ, but it rested on what they received from him. It was an unstable faith. It didn't have a solid ground to stand on. Their faith was simply based on the miracles, and that's it. And so in turn, Jesus did not and would not believe in them. He wasn't confident about her, their faith. The only thing that he could be confident about is that these individuals were turned away at a moment's notice. But true faith is evidenced by discipleship. And true faith leads to true worship of the living God, which is what we can take from this passage in a personal way. Hebrews 11:6, it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Jesus is the new temple, and the new temple gives place or provides a context for new and true worship, which is impossible apart from faith in Jesus Christ. True worship requires true faith in Jesus Christ, and it is by faith that we worship him each week. Also, it is by faith that we are united to Jesus Christ so that we as a church, become a part of the temple of his body. Ephesians 2.19 tells us, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the church is the temple of the living God with Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And this temple, he means to fill up with the fullness of the presence of God. Right? And that is why this new temple in Jesus Christ is far better than the, than the old one. Because every single believer is a part of that new temple. And every single believer can engage in proper worship of God. Not only that, but because of our faith in Christ, every single believer is considered also as a sort of mini temple. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your act of spiritual worship. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Yes, when we come together on Sunday mornings, we come together as a part of the temple of Jesus Christ, that is his body. And we worship him, and we praise him. But even when we are not here together, when we are outside these walls, no matter what we are doing, the Bible tells us that we are all a sort of a mini temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And so that means that we can engage in worship wherever we are. Martin Luther once described the Christian life as a life lived coram deo, that is a life lived in the face of God. And the wonderful thing about this passage in Romans and Corinthians is that we can worship the Lord at any time and at anywhere at any moment at just about anything except sin, of course. And if you want to worship the Lord most fully with your life, and you should want to, then live your life as you as if you are living it in the very face of God. And just imagine, I don't even imagine, but you can even just think right now. Like how differently would your life be? Might it look like if you saw your life, if you saw yourself as always living your life in the very face of God? Right? What would you do differently? Or what things would you start doing? What sins would you let go of? How would you would your interactions and how you treat other people look a little differently if you always remember that you are living your life in the very face of God? Because the Lord is always watching but we don't always behave like the Lord is watching our lives. We are all actors in the grand drama of God, with God being the director, and our aim in life is to live according to His script, which is written for us in His Word. So again, I ask, if you lived your life in that manner, would it look a little differently? But I get it, right? Sometimes we just don't get things right, right? Sometimes we fail and we sin. Actors, the actors mess up sometimes, but the director is gracious. He will not cast you out of the play and have you replaced, but if you continue to turn to him, there will always be an opportunity to try again to continue to pursue him with the help of his Holy Spirit who lives within you. And what's encouraging is that he will not Remember your sin, and if you don't follow Jesus, you also have a part to play in this drama of God. But it's very different than the than the one that His children are called to act out. And the thing about acting, about actors, and and trying out for plays or or movies or whatever, right? The the actor who tries out for a particular part, they have to give it their all in order to earn the attention. Of the director and earn their place in that play. But the great news of the gospel is that you don't have to do anything to earn the favor of the director. In fact, you can't do anything to earn the favor of the director. You just simply need to place your faith and trust upon Jesus Christ and commit your life to following him, to living a life of discipleship under Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus is the savior of the world, that he came to die on the cross for your sins. You'll be forgiven of your sins. You'll be considered a child of God. And you'll be given a new role in God's grand drama. And what's more is that this drama is leading to a climatic conclusion with that results in the joy of his people. And to, be, and to share in that eternal joy, you must believe in Jesus. <laughs>